Hey, I was thinking about this. Uh, does anybody think I look a little bit slimmer today? Anybody feeling like, man, Kevin, what? Some of you are thinking, Kevin, did you start running? I'm allergic to running. No, I promise you I did not start running. That is uh, an allergy I have. Actually, what I feel is the last several weeks we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, the way I feel like the Sermon on the Mount preaches is I feel like every week I come in, I feel like God's just chiseling at me. And just knocking some of the rough spots off of me. And, and, and week after week, I'm like, man, man, this hurts, this hurts. But I feel like God is just doing this great work in, in changing me. And I hope everybody else is feeling that same thing where uh, there might be some days that are a little uncomfortable because of some of the topics. But man, God is doing something beautiful through that. And uh, I definitely know that's how I feel. Today, uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, uh, we are going to be on another topic that um, maybe a little lighter than last week, but still something heavy for us. And we're going to deal with the topic of truthfulness, the, the, the topic of integrity of our speech. And so when we think about this idea of truthfulness, man, this is a, this is a lost thing in our world and culture today, isn't it? Truthfulness. Isn't it amazing how you can look all around through, through the media uh, and hear all sorts of, of varying opinions through media that are completely contrary to each other, and they're both got the truth? I mean, isn't it funny how you can pull anything up on the inter- interweb, and it's true, right? If you read it on the internet, that means it's true, right? Right? No, that's not true. I mean, isn't it funny how, how when we're talking about our fish, how our fish can be this big, Right? And how, and how when we're communicating with people, sometimes we want to say, well, our profits were, you know, maybe our profits were a little bit bigger than they really were. Maybe our worth is a little bit bigger than they really were. Or you say, well, you know, my, my boyfriend, you know, he's more handsome. He's really handsome. And maybe he's more like me. And he's not really that handsome at all. Uh, we have this idea where we just begin to exaggerate the truth just a little bit. Not big things, just, just a little bit. In fact, and then you look at the issue of politics. And it seems like politics is basically the art of deceit, right? I mean, who, who can come up with, make their lie seems the most legitimate. In fact, there was uh, a chaplain for the Kansas State Senate, uh, the state of Kansas. And, and one day before one of the Senate meetings, this is, was his prayer. His prayer was, omniscient father, help us to know who was telling the truth. One side tells us one thing, the other side tells us the opposite. Help us to know who's telling the truth. He prayed and said, if, if, neither of, uh, if neither side is telling the truth, help us to know that too. And he said, if each side is telling a half-truth, give us the wisdom to put the two halves together, the right halves together. Like, isn't that probably a, a valid statement for our society today? I mean, it, it really is. And, you know, it's easy for us in, in the church to say, well, that's just out in the world. I mean, that's out in the politics. You know, that's Democrats, Republicans, independents. That's all of them that are doing that. But actually, this issue of, of deceit and, and trustworthiness and, and truthfulness, man, it affects the church, too. It affects us right here. I mean, I, I'm just going to be honest. Man, I'm guilty of having some deceit in my life. There's been, uh, as many of you guys know, I, I, we've, my wife and I, we've got five kids. Now, when you have five kids, you have to play a zone defense, right? Anybody following me here? Like, when you've got one or two kids, like, you can play man-to-man. Like, you got this one, and I got this one, and, and we play defense like that. But when you've got five kids, there's too many kids to keep track of. And so we play a zone defense. I'm like, hey, I've got these three kids. You've got those two. We'll try and keep them somewhat wrangled together. 
And so with five kids, uh, when I go to work, sometimes my wife is left with all five of them. And there are some days, I know this might surprise you, there are some days where things go a little crazy at the Diet House. Where, you know, kids are practicing WWE professional wrestling moves on each other, right? And then as the kids are moving through the house, it's kind of like a tornado follows them. And there's a little mess in every room that follows them for wherever they go because that tornado that follows them. And, and, and with five kids, like it almost some days sounds like, like the, the sounds in our house is kind of like uh, Century League Field when the Seahawks are beating the 49ers. Sorry, 49er fans. When the Seahawks are beating the Cowboys. Okay, when the Seahawks are beating any, any other team. Like it's so loud in my house. Kids are screaming and crying and, and doing all the things. This might surprise you that sometimes my wife will text me and say, when are you coming home? I need some help. I need my other defender. And, and, and maybe I've shared this story before, but I, I have this tendency where my wife says, when are you coming home? I have this tendency to say, oh, I, I'm headed out. I, I'm on my way. Well, usually what happens is, is within the next few minutes, World War III starts in my house. And my wife looks at the clock and 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and 30 minutes later, I get the text. And you know it's serious when it's in all capitals. Where are you? I'm like, I'm on my way. I'm on my way. And she's like, you lie. You lie. <laughs> See, we've been married for 16 years. And so over the past 16 years, I have come up with my own definition of what it means for me to be on my way. I- I'm headed that way. What that means is when I say I'm on my way, that means I'm going to finish doing what I'm doing in the office. I'm going to finish writing that paper or doing whatever I'm doing. And then I'm going to go and take my coffee cup and, and go wash my coffee cup out. And when I'm washing my coffee cup, I'll notice the other dishes. So then I'll wash the dishes and get the dishes all wrapped up. Uh, and then everybody in the office, I got to go and talk to them. I got to say, hey, what are you doing tonight? Are you going to watch the game? And we're saying goodbye to everybody. And then after that, then I'm going to go and turn all the lights off. But... Then I notice, oh, remember that light I was supposed to replace? That's burnt out. I got to fix that light. So then I'll, I'll, I'll fix that light. And then finally I feel like, oh, I'm ready to go. And I'll, I'll get in my car. And I got to stop at the post office because I was supposed to do that earlier in the day and I hadn't. And so when I say, oh, I'm on my way, I kind of have my own definition of, of what that means. And I, I don't think it's necessarily, I would never call it a lie. I might say I exaggerated a little bit. I might say I, I, I fibbed a little bit. But I wouldn't call it a lie. Actually, this issue has probably been the cause of probably 75% of all the disagreements in our marriage. And I tell you, I'm great at defending it. I'm great at arguing and saying, I'm on my way means I'm wrapping things up. But do you know what the definition of a lie is? If you were to pull up the dictionary and say, what is a lie? A lie is a false statement made with intent to deceive. A lie is something intended to convey a false impression. And here's the one that sticks to me. A lie is an inaccurate or false statement. Now, see, I, I think I'm probably like most of you in here. Like, I don't like being called a liar. I don't like being told, you are a... I prefer the term, well, maybe I fibbed a little bit. Maybe I, I fudged a little bit. You know, it was just maybe an exaggeration. It's just a little white lie. It's, it's not a big deal. It's just a, it's just a little thing. But when you look at that definition of what a lie is, there's no difference. And we would do good for ourselves if we would just call it what it is. Now, I know some of you are sitting there thinking, man, my pastor's a liar. Whew, 
But let me just, let me just turn this back on us. And let me think through a couple scenarios that might happen in your life. And let me ask you if you've ever made any of these kind of statements. Okay? So, let's say you, meet, you run into somebody you haven't seen in a long time. Maybe they were someone that you kind of liked. Maybe they're someone that you, you know, you, you're not really fond of. And so what do you say to them? Anybody ever said, we should get together for lunch sometime soon? With no intent to ever call them and get together for lunch. Anybody ever made that? Don't raise your hand. Anybody ever made that statement, though? What about this one? What about this one? Somebody is, is, is getting ready. To, maybe they're going to move. And you know what you say? We all say it. Give me a call sometime. I'll, I'll, I'll help you out. And we're really hoping, man, don't call me. Don't call me. I was just saying that. And if they do call me, I'm going to come up with an excuse, right? How about this one? I'll pay you back tomorrow. Woo. Ouch. How, maybe you said this, or maybe you've been on the receiving end of this. What about this? Um, can I just have a minute of your time? It's never a minute. It's never a minute, right? Never, ever. How about, how many of you have ever made this statement? As long as we both shall live. How about my dog ate my homework? My dog actually did eat our homework one day, but that's a great excuse, right? How about my fish was this, this big, right? Gentlemen, you know what I'm talking about there? How about you ever said this? Have you ever said, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you? How about this? How about when somebody says, hey, you owe me some money? And you say, oh, man, I forgot to. The check's in the mail, Right? What about this one? You ever told someone, hey, I'll pray for you? And you walk away and you don't ever remember to pray for them. Now we can just say, well, these are little fibs. They're, they're accidents. They're, they're not that big of a deal. But you know what they are? They're deceit. They're, they're, they're lies. And we have all these terms that we want to justify ourselves. Uh, but in terms of our honesty and integrity... Some of us know that this is an area we need to grow in. Some of us know that we are great at justifying why we break our promises, why we break our commitments, why we do any of these things. And my prayer is that if you and I would just be honest before God today, that God would just begin to chisel us a little bit more. And maybe it's not a big issue, but maybe it would be an area that God would just chisel off some rough spots off of us to make us reflect a little bit more who he is. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to, to be in Matthew chapter 5. Um, all the verses we read will be on the screen behind me as well. And uh, Jesus, again, he's preaching to a uh, world that truth is perverted. Truth is diminished. And so he's preaching, and he's going to, uh, just as it is today, I should say, and he's going to preach about how a, a radical uh, truthfulness and integrity is a foundation of the Christian life. That if we want to be effective in our Christian life, in our testimony, that we have to live lives of radical truthfulness and integrity. So here's, here's how Jesus starts out. Verse 33, chapter 5, Matthew 5, 33. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. sworn. Basically, according to the Old Testament, if you were going to do something, uh, if you were gonna, if you're gonna say something that was going to be true, you would attach a an oath uh, to it, and you would basically say, you know, uh, I swear to God, a as God lives, I promise you, this is going to be true. 
It was, an oath was basically calling on God um, as a witness. Trying to make our words stronger, trying to make people understand, hey, you can believe me right now because I swore uh, on, on God's word. I swore to God that this is the truth. In fact, as you read through the Old Testament, you're going to see that these oaths, and I'm going to use these, the, the terms oath or promise or uh, swearing uh, interchangeably. They kind of mean the same idea. You're making this commitment of drawing God in. Uh, you see this throughout the Old Testament. It's, it's even after, oftentimes encouraged. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, we can look at a number of verses. I'm going to give you one. Deuteronomy chapter tw- 10, uh, the, uh, Moses writes, he says, You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to his name. And by his name you shall swear. Very clearly. Hey, this is what you're supposed to do. In fact, vows were so common in the Old Testament that the issue wasn't whether or not we're supposed to make vows or not, but the issue was when you make a vow, you've better, you've better follow through on that vow. You can't break that vow. The expectation was when you make it, you better keep it. The book of, again, you could look to several verses in the Old Testament, but I'm going to give you one. Leviticus chapter 19, Moses writes and says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. Hey, you can't, you can't break your, your, your promises. You can't break your, your oaths. You, you swear uh, to God that this is true. You can't break that. In fact, if you did, oftentimes you were punishable by death if you broke your promise. And so the Old Testament, you see this pattern where vows are, are permitted, vows are encouraged. But the issue is if you break a vow, you're going to be in trouble because your word mattered. God's reputation mattered. So if you swore to God and you broke that promise, you are dealing with God's reputation. But here's the problem. And here's what Jesus is going to deal with. Back in, the old, back in the, those days, the religious scribes and Pharisees, they would take God's word and they would interpret it. And they would have a, a very loose interpretation for what God's word says. And so when they read that verse that we just read a second ago in Deuteronomy chapter 10... When they read that, it said, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast, and by his name you shall swear. They keyed in on, by his name you shall swear. And so the, old, the, the, the religious people of that day said, listen, listen, if you swear by God's name, then you've got to follow through on that promise. You've got to follow through on that oath. But if you swear by anything else, it doesn't really matter. You can break it all you want. This was their way of interpreting it. So if you swore to God, then you've got to follow through. But if you swore to the temple, you can break your promise whenever you want. You don't have to be truthful in that. In fact, this is the way it would work out. Let's say you owed somebody money. Let's say you owed somebody money. And you said, or I owed somebody money. You said, hey, Kevin, you owe me some money. And I say, well, well, I swear on my brother-in-law's life. I swear on my brother-in-law's life. I'll pay you back tomorrow. Well, guess what? Because I didn't swear on God's name... Sorry, sorry, Dana. Your life isn't worth much to me. Because I can break that promise. And so there I swear on somebody else's name. It doesn't matter. I can break that promise all I want because I didn't swear in God's name. This is where I think uh, you remember back to elementary school. You guys remember back to elementary school? And this is what we would do. We would have this, this great claim that we want to make. And we take our hand and kind of hide it behind our back, right? I mean, I remember doing this. I remember doing this when I was in elementary school. I remember saying... Uh, we were fascinated with Condon's, uh, Condon's Castle. If you're new to Yakima, you drive out Knob Hill in about 56th or so. You look on the left, there's this big castle. It's really cool. Now listen, I don't know anybody's actually ever been in it. I think people, I don't know if people live there or not. 
But I remember we thought it was so cool that I told all my friends, yeah, we got we to we tour through the castle. And it was awesome. And we got to spend the night at the castle. And one of my friends was like, no, you didn't. You're lying. And I'm like, I didn't lie. My fingers were crossed. I didn't, my fingers are crossed. I didn't lie. Right? That's basically what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. They were saying, well, I'm going to make a promise, but my fingers are crossed, so I don't have to keep that promise. I can break it whenever I want. This was uh, spiritual schizophrenia, where they're not quite telling the truth, but they're not quite lying. They're trying to just be everything. In fact, they took this so, so, the idea so far, and were so crazy with it, that there's a, a book of interpretations or rules that they created called the, called the Mishnah. In fact, they had a whole section that, that stated when oaths were binding and when oaths were, oaths were not. They had a whole section of their rules that said when you can lie and when you can't. When you can break your promise and when you can't. This is the idea for the religious leaders of the day. Again, if you understand the religious leaders of their day, their goal was to uh, earn their uh, righteousness. Their goal was to be self-righteous, to make themselves righteous. And so in order for them to do that, you had to, they had to create a system in which uh, they could actually keep. And since, by nature, we're all liars, they had to create a system that would permit some of their lies. That would allow their lies without making them guilty before God. And so they, they fit their lies into these vows and these promises. Now listen, I know that some of us do that. Some of us have an issue with, with making a promise and not keeping the promise. Uh, but you know what probably our, our bigger problem is? And I think I mentioned this in the beginning. I think maybe, maybe it's not, well, I make these great vows to God. I swear to God I'm telling you the truth. Maybe the bigger issue for us today is maybe we, we, we call them something different. Maybe we call them little fibs, right? Where we can be dishonest with something and we can just, well, it's just a little fib. It's not that big of a deal. And we, we excuse it in our mind. Maybe we just say, well, I'm just exaggerating. I'm just, I, I'm rounding up. I'm rounding up is all I'm really doing. It's not really that big of a deal. It's just a white lie. Nobody cares. Nobody, nobody got hurt. And so we, 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 we like to term it differently. So we don't, again, we don't like being called a liar. But remember what the definition of a lie is. We've got to call it what it is. And that would actually do more benefit for us if we would actually call it what it is. Why do we, why do, we do that, though? Why is that a temptation for us to try and uh, uh, minimize our, our deceit and try and excuse it and make it sound better than it really is? Why, why do we do that? Why do we tell white lies? Why do we have little fibs? Why do we fudge the truth? There's an uh, old pastor, old dead pastor, and, and, and he wrestled with this idea, and this is what he said. He said, I always try to be truthful, but at the same time, I tell many petty lies. Little lies, small things. Where I, am, uh, where I more often am wrong is when I pretend to hear things which I do not, especially jokes and good stories, the point of which I always miss. But seeing everybody laugh, I laugh too, for the sake of not looking like a fool. My respect for the world's opinion is my greatest stumbling block. Isn't that why we lie? Isn't that why we fudge? Isn't that why we fib? Isn't that why we exaggerate? Because if we are honest, then what if somebody thinks less of us? What if they don't approve of us? What if they don't like us? 
What if, they, what, if, what if we do something wrong and they decide they don't like us anymore? Because we're more concerned with other people's opinions than we are with God's opinion. In fact, I, my wife and I, we built this house this past winter. And as we built this house, we ordered the cabinets, and the cabinets come in, and there was one drawer that was the wrong size. There's one drawer, and we're like, all right, well, that's fine. You know, we'll just call the, the company, and we'll say, hey, we need this new drawer ordered. And so uh, my wife handled this. My wife called and uh, told the guy, hey, this is what we need. And he came out and measured the drawer, and he's like, great, I'll, I'll order you a new drawer. It'll be here in a week. And so we were like, great, that's, you know, they're going to take care of it. Well, three weeks later, the, the, the drawer isn't here. And so my wife calls, and it's like, hey, uh, hey, remember that drawer I ordered from you? Where's that drawer at? And he's like, oh, uh, you know, I'll follow up on, I'll find out, I don't know where it's at, I'll find out what happened to it. Well, uh, he says, I'll call you back. Well, he never calls back. And so a couple weeks later after, this is five weeks after he came to, to, to check it out. My wife calls again, and it's like, hey, that drawer that we were talking about, where's, where's that drawer? And he, he says, oh, well, um, it, it got lost in shipping. It got lost in shipping. I'm, I'm so sorry. You know, we'll, we'll make sure we order another one. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll get it ordered right. And, my wife says, well, what about, uh, okay, that's, that's too bad. What about this other thing that you were supposed to add? Oh, yeah, that got lost in shipping too, right? He says, it'll be here in a week. And guess what? It was here in a week. Now, how many of you have ever been on that receiving end where you've called and said, hey, what about this? And somebody gives us an excuse. And you know, the, you, you know what it is. You can read right through it. I know you're lying to me. You're just trying to cover your, 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 your bases. Now, how many of you have been on the giving end of that? Somebody says, hey, you were supposed to do this, and you say, oh, well, uh, it got lost in shipping. I'll order you a new one. How many, of that is, how many of us does that speak to today about how we justify being deceitful, how we justify our lives? The question is, whose approval are you most concerned with? Are you most concerned with what other people think about you? Or are you most concerned with what God thinks and says about you? Most of us, we've got to deal with this. We've got to deal with a deceit. We've got to deal with a lack of integrity in our life. Because it has implications. It has implications on our life and to the people around us. But back in our text, here's what Jesus says about the scribes and the Pharisees and their deceit. And they're excusing their lies. Verse 34, Jesus says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Jesus basically said, listen guys, stop making those dumb oaths. Stop swearing by anything, anything you want to swear on. He says, when you swear by heaven or when you swear by the earth or you swear by Jerusalem, um, all of those things are part of God's creation. And so when you swear on anything of this world, you are swearing on God's creation, which is a part of God himself. God is all in all. There is no area that God isn't a part of in our world. And so when you swear on your brother-in-law's life, he was even created by God. And so Jesus is saying, you can't, you can't swear on anything else and have it not be connected and related to God. All of God, all of the world is God's creation. So you can't refer to any of it without ultimately referring back to God. In fact, I, I don't want us to miss this. Verse 34, the very beginning of verse 34, Jesus says, 
But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Do not even have to make a promise. You know why we have to make oaths? You know why we we say these things like, I swear to God? It's because we're all liars. We're We're all liars. It's true. We're all bent towards it. This is where you have a little kid. You have babies. We've had five of them. And you know what you have to do with your babies? You don't teach them to lie. Right? And have you ever taught a kid to lie? No, you confront a kid and you say, hey, did you eat the chocolate chip cookie that was on the counter? They're like, no. But what about all the chocolate all over your face? I wasn't me. You have to teach your kids to tell the truth because we are born with that sin nature. We're born to lie. We're born to be deceitful and, 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 and wrong. In fact, the original language uh, in this verse, when you look at this word oath, the original language uh, is this word horkos, which gives us the idea of, of strengthening, idea of binding. We have to strengthen our word. We have to add to our word to make it believable because our word by itself is not believable. In fact, there's a theologian who, who, who said this. He said, whenever I utter the formula, I swear to God, what I'm really saying is, is I'm going to mark off an area uh, that is absolute truth and put walls around it to cut it off from the muddy floods of untruthfulness and irresponsibility that ordinarily overruns my speech. He says, when we make a promise, when we make a vow, we are saying uh, that people are expecting me to lie from the very start. And just because they are counting on my lying, I have to bring up these big guns of oaths and words of honor to make my word more believable. Does that sting with anybody in here today? Does that sting with you? Some of us have a word that is so untrustworthy. We have to do whatever we can to add to it. Some of us make commitments. We say, hey, I I promise you, I'm going to follow through on this. And the only reason that we made that commitment is because there's some sort of benefit in it for ourselves. And as soon as that benefit for ourselves is gone, I can break that commitment. I could just dispose of it because it's no longer benefiting me. This deals with our integrity and our truthfulness. And here's what Jesus is going to say. Because he knows that we're going to be prone to deceiving, to making ourselves look better, to, to justifying. He says in verse 37, he said, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. He says, simply let your yes be yes, let your no be no. If we're going to be Christians and we're going to have an influence on our world, and we're going to make an impact in the world around us, we have to live lives of radical truthfulness and integrity. Where when we say something, that by itself is bound. There used to be a day and age where you would make a, a, a deal, a transaction based on a handshake. Your word was all it took. I, I promise you, I'm gonna, my, my handshake's here. I, I'm good for it. We don't do that anymore. Now we have contracts and, and, and lawyers get involved because we're all looking out for our own self-interest and trying to do what benefits us most. And if that means we break the promise, that's fine to do. You know, do you recognize that the world around us it longs for freedom from dishonesty. I absolutely believe that. 
The world around us longs for the freedom from dishonesty. Now, absolutely, we have a world that, that cultivates uh, deception and, and even promotes it. I mean, especially in the political realm and, and elsewhere. But deep down, I think people have a genuine uh, longing to escape the, the show and the, the pretense of trying to look like we all have it all together. I think the world around us admires people who display honesty and integrity. I think about it from this perspective. When I was training to be a pastor, going through, reading some books and going through some things, and there was, uh, there was a, a tribe of, of, of people that would say, listen, if you are going to be a, 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 a pastor and you want your church to follow you, then you have to be the high and lifted up guy. You've got to be the guy that has it all together, that's really righteous, that has no faults. They said, here's how you do that, is you hide your junk. You hide the areas that you struggle, and you become secluded from people, where you don't want people into your life, because if they come into your life, they're going to see that the public persona that you show is not the way you live Monday through Saturday. So they said, you need to show up on Sunday, and you don't look like you have it all together, and never let anybody know that there's any weakness. Never let anybody know that there's any brokenness. Personally, that's, that's not the kind of leader I'm drawn to. Because I recognize we're all broken. We all have issues. I cannot be that kind of leader. Because what, what I want, and what I want to be as a leader, as a pastor, is I want to be genuine. I want to just be genuine. What you see is what you get. Like, I'm not much. This is what you get. Right? I don't have it all figured out. As I read the Sermon on the Mount, I hope I'm not the only person that God is just putting his finger on to say, man, you've got some areas in your life that you've got to deal with. That you've been too lackadaisical. You've been too loose. You've got to rein this in so you look more like me. That's the kind of guy that I want to follow. That's the kind of guy that is genuine saying, hey, we're on this path together. Let's learn together. That's the kind of guy I want to follow. That's the kind of leader I want to be. In fact, I think this is why, in the world, I think this is why Christians oftentimes get the reputation of being hypocrites. Right? Isn't this why we're called hypocrites? Because sometime, I don't know when it was, sometime in the last 2,000 years, somebody decided if you're going to be a good Christian, then you've got to have it all together. You've got to live a good life. You've got to follow everything. And so what's happened is because there's this somewhere, somewhere, someone put this expectation on us that we've all started faking the part, right? We've all tried to look good on the outside and say, look at me, I'm a good Christian. Yeah, I don't have any struggles. Yeah, things are wonderful. And underneath it's not. Underneath we're a mess. We're a hot mess and everything's falling apart. But we show up on Sunday, we put a smile on our face. Life's good. Life's good. Let me just set the record straight. A Christian is not somebody who has everything all together. You have doubts? Listen, you're welcome to the body of Christ. You have struggles and brokenness? So do I. So does every one of us in this room, whether or not we're willing to admit it or not. In fact, Jesus has already told us what a Christian is. 
If you think back in the Sermon on the Mount, the first message on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus uses this beatitude and says, all the, uh, everything else on the sermon is based on this beatitude. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He said, if you are poor in spirit, you are a genuine Christian. That is what makes you a Christian. We'll say, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? To be poor in, to be poor in spirit is to be spiritually deprived. It's to be, it's to be it's spirit, poor in spirit is someone who is wicked and knows it, who knows they're broken, who knows they have a heart that's bent towards rebellion, and they're trying to get it to follow Jesus, but it's a process. And when we give this example of what it means to be a poor in spirit, where you drive out to Walmart, and you see the guy in the corner, and he's holding the sign. He says, can you spare some food to feed me? That guy is holding that sign. Oh, he's got a lot of reasons for holding a sign. I'm not going to get into there. But holding that sign, he's saying, listen, I'm bankrupt. I've got nothing. I cannot survive unless somebody else comes and does it for me. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. That we recognize, man, I'm spiritually bankrupt. Like I try and follow the rules. I try and be a good person. But I know that my heart is desperately wicked. I know that I have a tendency to deceive other people to make myself feel better or to look better. I know that I may not commit adultery, but I know that lust is something that runs through all of our minds. I know that I may not murder somebody, but I know that when I have anger with somebody else, God's word says I'm just as guilty. And the poor in spirit person recognizes, man, as much as I'm trying to follow after God, I'm just never going to get good enough because we can't. And the poor in spirit recognizes I'm not good enough and I need someone else to earn my salvation for me. And that's where Jesus steps in. That's where the gospel comes in. The genuine believers in Christ are not people who have it all together. They're people who depend on Jesus. Who recognize I need Jesus. And that's what gives me standing with God. Not because I'm such a great person. Not because I can fake it till I make it. But because I know, man, Jesus is the one that gives the answers. He's the one I need. If we're going to live a life like that and be poor in spirit. Man, that's when we become that genuine Christian. And here's, here's where we are today. Is Jesus is asking us to look at our lives. Saying, when you make a promise, how good are you at following through on that? You make a commitment. You join a program. You walk down the aisle and you make that commitment. Can you be trusted with that? Somebody asks you a question. You owe me some money. Can it be trusted with the answer? The check's in the mail. Because as Christians, we're to live a life of radical truthfulness and integrity. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why we need to live a life like that. Because like I said, the world around us is desperately longing for that genuineness. The world around us is looking for someone to be truthful and honest because we're tired of, buying the, of reading all the lies. We're lied to day in and day out, time and time and time again. 
And there's something to be said when we can be truthful, when we can have integrity. There's nothing more powerful than that that testimony than a Christian who says, look, this is where I'm at. These are my struggles. This is where I'm growing. This is an area that I feel like God's speaking to me and I'm working on. Listen, that is what compels people to Christ more than any great theology you might know, more than you faking it like you've made it. It's just somebody that's genuine. Saying, man, this is what God's called me to. And I'm striving for it. I'm working for it. I'm not there yet, but I'm, I'm pursuing the goal. I'm pursuing the prize. Someday I'll get there in eternity. I'll experience it. But until then, I'm working after that to be what God has called me to be. As we close, I want to just remind us something about the Sermon on the Mount. When we started the Sermon on the Mount, we said the Sermon on the Mount was written to two different groups of people. The first group of people, these were the scribes and the Pharisees. These were the very religious people. The religious people of the day that focused on outward actions. And they tried to prove that they are good enough. They tried to prove, hey, look, I'm such a good person that God owes me salvation. And and this sermon, Jesus is trying to get in their face to say, listen, you're never going to be good enough. You can try and, and justify all you want. You will never be good enough. Outward actions are not enough. It's what's in our heart that matters. And our heart is what makes us guilty before God. The second group of people were people who recognized their failures. The people who knew that they were liars. The people who knew that they were sinners. Listen, whichever category you find yourself in today, maybe you're one of those religious people who's been to church all your life and you think, man, I'm a good person. God owes me. Maybe you're on the opposite side. Maybe you're one of those people who, man, you know you don't have it all together. You know you've got some weakness spots, some brokenness. Listen, the Sermon on the Mount, the goal isn't to leave you in a heap on the floor crying over your failures to show you how bad you are. The goal is to convict you and point you to Jesus to give you hope. Listen, none of us in here, none of us are honest all the time. But you know who is? Jesus. In fact, Jesus gives us a promise, a promise of a great exchange, where Jesus will will take his righteousness, all of his good stuff, his, his truthfulness, and he'll give it to us, and his righteousness becomes ours. And and we take our sin and our unrighteousness and our brokenness and our wickedness, and we give it to him. And no longer are we known for our unrighteousness and our brokenness. Now we're known because of what Jesus has done for us. We're known for his righteousness. And we experience new life, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done for us. Where the weight is no longer on us. No longer do I have to try and measure up. That weight's removed because he's done it for me. And that's where freedom is found. That is where we can be free to tell the truth. Because listen, it doesn't matter what somebody else thinks about me. It matters what God thinks about me. He defines my value. And when he says, you are worthy to send my son to the cross to die for I don't care what you think about me because my Savior says, I love you and you are so valuable to me. I'm going to send my son to the cross for you. 
And so we don't have to pretend we can be who we are because our value is defined by him. We no longer have to look to the world for our status, for for, for value, for love. Because God has proved that on the cross. And when we recognize what God has done for us, that our value comes from him, that our status comes from him, it frees us. It frees us. We don't have to lie to make ourselves look better. It frees us to to live a life of radical truthfulness and integrity. So here's what I want to ask you to do. We're going to get ready to move into worship and spend some time just just praising God. And do this time, I just want to ask you to take some time just to pray and just ask the Holy Spirit. Ask God to show patterns in your life. Show patterns of your life where you have a pattern of breaking your commitments. Show patterns of your life where you become deceitful. Show patterns in your life where you have justified deceit. And as God brings that to your mind, I want you to take that time and just just confess before God. Just confess that before God and ask God to give you the power to bring change in your life, to, to experience the freedom to be truthful. Listen, some of you in here today, you need to seek some people around you, some people that you trust. You need to ask them and just say, you know what? Do you see any patterns in my life where my truthfulness and my integrity isn't where it needs to be? You should invite some people into your life to speak into that. Where they can have the freedom to say, you know what? I see this area of your life. Man, it's lacking. It's not the way that God would want you to live. Invite them to speak into that. Invite them to hold you accountable. Where you can say, man, this is an area. I guess I should be the first one to say this. I need to stop saying I'm on my way home unless I'm in my car. I should just be the first one to admit that. And now I've got 115 people in here to hold me accountable to that. Darn it. Gosh. My wife's going to be so happy though. Some of us need to take that step. Say, listen, this is an area of my life that I know is a problem. Would you hold me accountable to live a life of integrity and truthfulness that my yes would be yes and my no would be no and I wouldn't have to add justification. I wouldn't have to add all these vows. I could just be Genuine and truthful. Listen, start on those little things in life. Work your way up from there. But today, let's take that time and, and pray that God would empower us to live lives of radical truthfulness.